Chapter Four of Martin Luther by Carl E. Koppenhaver. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The breach widens. Pushed into the arena. Even while Luther was meeting with Miltitz, circumstances were shaping up which drove him to break silence. He had stated his willingness to recant if someone proved his error. An ambitious professor at the University of Ingolstadt, John Eck, with an enviable reputation as a disputant, saw in this his opportunity to win renown and also favor with Rome. Andrew Karlstadt of the Wittenberg faculty had espoused the cause of Luther publicly and had been engaged in an extended debate with Eck through the medium of pamphlets. Now a public debate between the two was arranged for Leipzig. In preparation, Eck drew up a series of twelve theses, directed not so much at his differences with Karlstadt as with the theology of Luther. The champion of Roman orthodoxy clearly was baiting Luther into the arena. After months of wrangling about procedures and proper invitations, and with much pomp and pageantry, the debate got under way on June twenty seventh, fifteen nineteen. Several hundred Wittenberg students were there, a sixteenth century sort of college cheering section. During the ensuing eighteen days of debate, they frequently became embroiled with the Leipzig University students who sided with Eck. Karlstadt and Eck matched wits for four days over the relation between grace and free will. The erudition and cleverness of Eck gave him a decided advantage over the Wittenberg scholar, but spectator interest was being reserved for July 4th, when Luther would take the field. For another four days Eck and Luther discussed the divine right of the Pope, with Ingolstadter insisting that the divine plan of government was a monarchy with the Pope at its head. Luther agreed that the Church was a monarchy, but that Christ was its head. The passage in St. Matthew concerning the rock upon which Christ would build his Church was quoted by Eck with the interpretation that Peter was the rock, and since he also was the first Pope, it was clear that papal supremacy had been established by Christ. Luther declared the passage should be considered along with Peter's previous statement, Thou art the Christ. This confession, he said, is the rock on which Christ built his church. THE SHADOW OF Hus. The crisis at Leipzig was reached when Eck backed into a dialectical corner and had to resort to foul tactics. How to discredit Luther? Perhaps if he made him synonymous with heresy? Craftily Eck pointed out the similarity between Luther's arguments and those of the Bohemian reformer John Hus whom the Council of Constance had condemned to the stake a century before. Luther denounced the insinuation and declared the Bohemian heresy irrelevant to the debate. It was inevitable in opposing the Roman Church's contention to primacy 
that Luther would use arguments similar to those of previous reformers. The condemnation of Hus as a heretic did not necessarily make all of his views heretical. In fact, Luther insisted, some of Hus's articles were genuinely Christian and evangelical. The spectators and visiting theologians were stunned, and perhaps Luther shocked even himself. Clearly his remark would be interpreted to mean that the general councils, the highest earthly authority, were not beyond fault. This was heresy. Luther had been long aware of the need for reform in the church. As his ideas developed, it became apparent that the Pope was not above human weakness. The church militant needed an earthly head, and for the sake of good order it was necessary that he be obeyed. But that didn't make him infallible. After all, he was human. Now this same reasoning had pushed from Luther's lips the admission that councils could err also. Unwittingly, Eck had contributed what probably was the greatest outcome of the debate, Luther's growing conviction that even general councils could be unreliable. Henceforth he would take his stand on the unassailable word of God as revealed in the Scriptures. Results of the debate were weighed by judges at the University of Paris, who condemned Luther and his views as heretical. When Philip Melanchthon, a Wittenberg associate and close friend of Luther, questioned the opinion on the basis of Scripture, the Parisians looked down their noses at the upstart, informing him that they were chief among the few to whom interpretation of Scripture could be entrusted for such a time as this. Luther was frankly disappointed with the outcome of the debate. He had hoped his opinions would be accepted and reformation of the church effected. The controversy did much, however, to crystallize his own views. The Pope did not have absolute authority. A council can err in its decisions. The Bible is above popes and council in authority. The Church of Christ is not limited to the Roman fellowship alone, but is the community of believers throughout the world. Gradually Luther realized these views differed so fundamentally from those of Rome that there was small chance of healing the breach. The notion that he might become a martyr recurred frequently but it didn't cause him to relinquish his zeal. In fact, he received inspiration from it and kept three presses rolling at full speed to turn out tracts, sermons, and commentaries. In addition to the Leipzig debate, the summer of 1519 brought forth another event which was significant in Luther's life. Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, died in January and the election of a successor was of utmost concern to the rulers and populace of Europe. Consequently, there was rejoicing in Germany on June 28th, when the electors named Charles of Spain in preference to Francis of France. Charles was a Habsburg, and the Germans confidently expected he would unite them into a strong, independent nation. However, the new emperor favored his Spanish mother, 
more than his German father, and treated his fatherland like an outlying province of Spain. Wide distribution of the ninety-five theses and other writings, as well as prominence resulting from the Leipzig encounter, had fixed the eyes of many Germans upon Luther. When Charles failed to step into the role of national figure, they switched their enthusiasm to Luther. Few understood his ideas on Christianity, but they believed he could lead them to political, intellectual, and economic freedom. Scholars, princes, knights, and commoners gathered about the Wittenberg professor, who had demonstrated his fearlessness in the face of tyranny. Gradually, Luther sensed his mission as leader in a mighty movement. History called it the Reformation. End of chapter 4